Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Native American Studies podcast. My name's James Mackay. I'm an assistant professor in American and English literatures at European University, Cyprus. Today, I'm talking with Sean Sherman, the visionary Oglala Lakota chef, who is working with and rediscovering traditional tribal recipes made with ingredients native to North America. Sean's book is called The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, and it's recently been published by Minnesota University Press. It's a truly gorgeous hardback filled with pictures of recipes such as sweet and sour roast goose with autumn squash and cranberries, cedar braised bison or raspberry leaf tea, as well as guides to ingredients including maple maple vinegar, wajape and staghorn sumac. The recipes are wonderfully written. I can personally recommend the wild rice pilaf with wild mushrooms, roasted chestnuts and dry cranberries. And they're interspersed with elements of autobiography and also historical and nutritional researched information. Hihane washte, Sean, pilamaye for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much and good morning to you. Good morning. So the the book is absolutely beautifully designed. It's full of gorgeous, full-color food photography that's had me hungry since I first opened it. Would you start by talking us through the cover design and the way that the whole book came together? Um, You know, we just, uh, it it took some time. We had a team working on it and we were, were really happy with the way that it turned out. You know, the cover design, we wanted to use the medicine wheel um, with the four directions, um, which is the same medicine wheel that is in our logo, if you look up the sous chef. Um, And uh, it's part of the O and the S-I-O-U-X for sous chef. Um, And we use that same color combination utilizing, you know, colors from some of the plants. So there's some squash, there's some uh, sumac, some choke cherry, and then some various uh, herbs. Um, And it just really kind of, you know, it's really eye-catching. So we really enjoy it so much. And in terms of the uh, interior, how did you come to work with Beth Dooley and how did you go about uh, preparing the dishes? I met Beth Dooley here in Minneapolis. Um, She's extremely talented. She's written a lot of other cookbooks um, around this uh, Minnesota region here. Um, And uh, um, she was just, you know, really pleasant to work with. And she had had so much experience writing cookbooks. So I really couldn't have uh, done this at all without her. So um, I was really happy that uh, we paired together. It's fantastic. And now for the book itself. Um, it starts with a sort of uh, a brief autobiography, and you, you begin by talking about your early upbringing on Pine Ridge, which is one of the poorest reservations in the United States. What sorts of flavors, smells, and feelings do you remember from that part of your childhood? You know, um, when I was looking backwards and thinking about traditional foods, um, thinking about, you know, which foods, you know, survived the colonialism that happened and looking at pieces like uh, um, the timsala, which is a prairie turnip that we harvested, you know, right up, basically right outside our back doors during the middle of the summer. Um, Choke cherries, which we had tons of those growing all around us, too. Um, you know, cooking lots of game. So we did a lot of hunting. Um, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of birds. Uh, we had uh, geese and duck, um, quail, a lot of pheasant and grouse. Um, 
there was some antelope and some venison. <clears throat> um, and, but, you know, the, the unfortunate status of, you know, growing up on uh, the, a reservation in the U.S., um, you know, being in a very oppressed state uh, and surviving off a lot of uh, government subsidy food, which is from the commodity food program. So a lot of, you know, canned and uh, over overprocessed government uh, boxed staples, you know, everything from macaroni to powdered milk to American cheese and things like that. So it's kind of a mix, you know. Who, who were the cooks in your family? Um, you know, my mom cooked a lot. My grandmother cooked. So usually when we had big, uh, gatherings, uh, a lot of the, the women of the family would be in the kitchen, uh, doing all sorts of stuff, getting the big feast, you know, big feast ready. So, um, but <clears throat> we on Pine Ridge, we were living just up the hill from where my grandparents were. So we were down at their house a lot. And my, my grandmother definitely did a lot of cooking. And as you tell us in the uh, in the introduction to the book, um, you've been actually working in the restaurant business since you were what about thirteen years old. Um, what what was it that inspired your early passion for cooking, and and then what made you want to go professional? Well, um, I didn't really plan on being a chef at that point in time. It was really just working out of necessity because we didn't have that much money. So I got. Uh, you know, I was able to get a restaurant job at a very young age, and I had already had a good work ethic at that young age. I'd been uh, working for my mother's uh, frame shop um, for uh, um, like ever since I was, uh, you know, eleven, twelve, and then I had uh, you know done a lot of paper routes and things like that. So I'd already been working a lot, um, and I just continued to work restaurants all through high school, all through college, and then post college, moving to um, a larger city from South Dakota. So moving into Minneapolis, Minnesota and continuing uh, working restaurants. And within a few short years of living in Minneapolis, I was able to land my first executive chef position. And that's what really kind of set me on, um, you know, taking the culinary career path a lot more seriously. So a lot of what you've done is actually been training on the job. You haven't had much in the way of sort of like uh, formal training. Yeah, I went to, you know, I went to college, but I took a lot of business classes and I continued to work restaurants through all that. Um, but yeah, a lot of the work that I had done was a lot, was very self-taught. Um, and even when my younger age, uh, um, college age, you know, when I was working in restaurants and I would, I had considered cooking school and going to a culinary school, but um, it's, I was already at a, a, you know, official sous chef position, you know, in the French term of it. And uh, it just uh, didn't really make sense to spend the money to, you know, go through a school and to get out to get the same position I'd already worked my way up to. So I just started reading a lot of culinary books and I would save up money and just take a long travel. So, you know, traveling through Europe for weeks at a time or down in Mexico and just really kind of absorbing, you know, culture and history and food um, wherever I was at. Uh, and, and speaking of Mexico, that, that's really such a formative experience for you, isn't it? Uh, you, you write about an epiphany that you had living in a Mexican village. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so after um, a particularly kind of grueling chef job, and you know, some, as some of them are, you know, working uh, way too many hours, not enough rest, and a lot of stress, um, I, took, I took off down to Mexico for kind of a hiatus in between jobs to try to figure out which direction to move next. And uh, down on this little tiny beach town on the Pacific in a state of Mexico called Nayarit, um, the town was called San Pancho. And uh, it was just a really cute little Mexican village. And there was an indigenous group there that were always selling wares at the beach and jewelry and, uh, you know, beaded things and stuff like that. And they were called the Huichol. And the Huicholes were, uh, you know, 
I just found them so interesting. And I really started reading up about them because I saw so many commonalities between the way they were, their artwork, their mythology, and, you know, having grown up around Lakota in um, the United States and the South Dakota area. Um, and it just kind of clicked for me. And just like, uh, you know, I realized I'd been spending so much time in my culinary career um, studying other cultures around the world and really trying to get to, to the base and foundation and then realizing I re- didn't really hardly know anything about my own Lakota background when it came to culinary. And when I did some research, you know, discovering that it just wasn't there and it just seemed so blatant, you know, because I could walk around uh, Minneapolis um, per se or even any city in the U.S. and find food from all over the world and nothing that pertained to the people or the culture or the food systems that were, you know, that we were standing on. So it really shot me on a path to try to figure it all out. Yeah, there's a a wonderful Facebook group you're probably aware of called uh, Food Sovereignty as Tribal Sovereignty. Um, Would would you talk a little bit more about that relationship between um, rediscovering original foodways and uh, decolonization? So, you know, with the decolonization, it's just understanding what colonization is and what it has done to um, a large area of the entire world, you know, large areas, I should say. So, you know, you see it coming uh, strongly out of Europe in history and moving not only through the Americas, but also, you know, across Africa and down around India and Southeast Asia and, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, like you just see like this immense amount of colonization happening for, you know, a few hundred years. And then looking at the aftermath of it, of how these indigenous peoples were living in the wake of it, and especially for me, having grown up, you know, firsthand um, as a result of, uh, you know, colonization caused by the U.S. government, Um, And what it's done to the food systems, you know, stripping people of not only language and uh, tradition, but taking them away from their traditional foods. And that was really the first step in colonization, especially for the U.S., was to, you know, remove the indigenous peoples from their food. So whether it was burning down fields and crops on the East Coast or destroying, you know, massive herds of bison um, or taking away hunting grounds or, uh, you know, grounds that had usually produced staples like camas root or something like that. Um, and then, you know, over U.S. history, you know, forcing a lot of these uh, tribes to, you know, live in much smaller areas um, and become extremely reliant on government. Um, and especially with, you know, for us, you know, utilizing the commodity food program, which was started out as a farm supplement program to support farmers and utilize a lot of their product to create staples for schools, hospitals, and, you know, Native American um, communities. Um, But then seeing like the immense amount of diabetes and obesity um, and just poor health and nutrition that comes from a steady diet of these really poorly nutritional offerings. Um, So it's just going backwards to see like, you know, before Europeans came through, uh, before U.S., you know, before the U.S. pushed through the West, which wasn't ancient history. This is only like, you know, in the mid late 1800s that most of the tribes in the U.S. Uh, were were falling to the U.S. government. So this was just the food of my great grandfather's era. Because my great grandfather, you know, grew up uh, with the Lakota on the plains, and uh, you know, he was 18 during the Battle of Little Bighorn, which is a famous battle with the U.S. cavalry um, in Montana, is where it takes place, um, and. You know, just trying to trace back, like, you know, what were, what was my family eating back then? And how were they growing things? And were they uh, harvesting? What were they harvesting? How were they preserving foods? Where were they getting things like salts and sugars and fats? And, 
you know, just trying to understand it kind of all through a culinary lens and then just really seeing like how much uh, diversity we have just here in North America, but also seeing these commonalities of indigenous peoples all around the world of how you're, you know, really connected to the landscape around you for food, for medicine um, and for everything, you know, for shelter, for building stuff and just realizing like the immense vast knowledge and how powerful that is all over the world to you know, start to begin to understand and absorb indigenous knowledge compared to, you know, the colonial mindset, which was just leaving settlers and, you know, pulling natural resources out of areas to make, you know, some other entity extremely rich, not even the people there. Um, and just looking at the value of it, like, why is this uh, pertainable or why, why is this important today? And, uh, you know, there's, there's many, there's many reasons out there. Well, yeah. Wow. Well, um, in terms of what you were saying there about um, uh, impact on health, um, something that your uh, book very definitely does not include is a, a recipe for fry bread. Um, and I don't think I've ever been to an Indigenous catered event that didn't include fry bread. So would you explain the reason for leaving it out? Well, part of the decolonization of the diet and looking at extremely regional foods, so we weren't even trying to fusionize. So here in Minnesota, we were surrounded by two big groups uh, um, largely for indigenous peoples. And one was the Dakota people and the other one was the Ojibwe or the Anishinaabe people. And we were just looking at, you know, what were these groups eating in this region particularly and trying to make a lot of recipes out of that. So here in these forest lands with Great Lakes, you know, utilizing all these staples with wild rice and everything. And, you know, we were cutting out anything that wasn't here before. So we were just uh, dropping off uh, a lot of European ingredients that were introduced later. So things like wheat flour, dairy, processed cane sugar, beef, pork, chicken, um, just processed foods in general, and just really looking at this wholesome um, base of foods, you know, through Native American agriculture and the seeds that people were growing and the wild foods around us and the animals and the cooking techniques and making that. So when we were first looking at it, you know, fry bread falls off right away because you see fry bread as a result of, you know, the commodity food program, again, with the government um, giving staples to indigenous peoples um, have, with heavy staples like uh, lard, uh, flour, salt, sugar, coffee. And, you know, those staples of flour, lard, salt, uh, you know, people didn't even have ovens or anything back in those days. So the only thing you could really do was this, you know, kind of military style uh, quick bread of just making a simple dough and then frying it, you know. Um, and it slowly became, uh, you know, integrated into Native American culture um, across the board because I definitely grew up with it on Pine Ridge Reservation and it was celebrated as Native food, but it really wasn't when you looked at it. And it was the, one of the first things that we just decided to go against because it was, you know, extremely unhealthy and uh, really did not represent us well. And it, there's no reason that fry bread should represent every single, you know, indigenous community across North America since we're so diverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's actually a symbol of colonization for you. Yeah, it's oppression food. <laughs> okay, so you you're throwing out Western ingredients. You're throwing sort of throwing out European ingredients. You're um, starting to work on in American indigenous plants and animals. Uh, what sort of research did you do, and what were the favorite new ingredients you found to work with? Well, I think we discover a lot of new ingredients every year, especially as we study wild foods and plants and just get to know more and more plants around us and finding out ways that indigenous peoples were utilizing these plants. So, you know, it's a, it's been, you know, I've been studying. So I first started just with the understanding that 
um, the indigenous people's work connected to the plants and, you know, not being comfortable with, you know, calling something just a weed if you don't know what it is, but really understanding the true nature of all of this plant life around us and studying a lot of, you know, ethnobotanical texts and uh, um, foraging texts and things like that and really trying to get a sense for wild food. Um, of particular regions and then spending a lot of time outdoors just like you know in real time like searching things uh, researching things um, you know harvesting and then playing with things in the kitchen Um, but then constantly just reading all sorts of stuff so historical texts um, looking through um, first-hand accounts um, you know which unfortunately is written by usually military or religious so they're very skewed about you know what happens when you come across an indigenous group um, and but, you know, finding some beautiful texts here and there that really showcased, you know, indigenous perspective um, and really relying on that. And then also just, you know, talking to a lot of elders in different communities, especially as I started my work with the, my company, the Sioux Chef, and was able to start traveling around to different tribes more and more and just really starting to absorb it on a much faster scale. Um, and, you know, so that's what really helped me blossom was to do this in real time as my job and to, you know, bring on um, another generation of young chefs and start to train them um, and to really inspire, you know, more and more people to do this kind of work. Um, so, you know, right now as we're getting, as we have just released a nonprofit and we're really focused on indigenous education and creating food access for indigenous communities, we have this grand plan of helping to create and spread um, indigenous uh, knowledge um, through food all across North America and helping to create um, food, indigenous food businesses, um, especially in tribal communities everywhere that we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, okay, so coming back to the, the research element for a moment, um, well, what sort of predecessors did you find who'd been doing this work before or was it brand new? Uh, No, I wouldn't say it was brand new at all. I mean, I was taking bits and pieces from all sorts of stuff. So, you know, there was a lot of archaeological work. There was uh, a lot of, uh, there was people like Gary Nabon, um, Lois Allen Frank, who had written a really beautiful cookbook um, much earlier than than mine came out. Um, People like uh, Loretta Barrett-Odin, who had uh, a native-themed restaurant, um, uh, you know, a decade or so before me. And had also, um, you know, produced a PBS series on indigenous foods, um, you know, back then too. So there was definitely a lot of people and just creating this, you know, look, researching this network and constantly finding people. And for me, it was just connecting dots a lot too. So being able to travel around and just meeting these really wonderful, inspiring people from different regions, um, mostly from the U.S., but, you know, all over the place and all these different tribes. So meeting, you know, history professors and native professors and seed keepers and farmers um, and just really kind of pulling it together where, you know, we have a lot of really cool kind of food sovereignty and indigenous food events um, happening throughout the U.S. more and more now. And we're seeing a lot of the same people and then we're just really sharing and we're inspiring more and more generations. So it's really kind of this group effort, you know, and for me going into it, knowing as a culinary project, this had nothing to do with my personal ego as a chef and to really just, you know, do the research because it needed to be out there. Uh, sort of to go on from there um if you go and you mentioned this earlier if you go to any world city you'll find an italian restaurant a chinese restaurant korean french thai etc but you'll find very very few indigenous restaurants in america Uh, why, why why do you think that is and also why should people who've not tried indigenous american cuisine before take the leap and try it Well, I mean, it's really, if you're in North America, whether in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, or Alaska, 
um, or the Caribbean. It's really just understanding the food and the flavor of in the historical context of, you know, how are people surviving on these lands before and, you know, researching, you know, the, um, you know, indigenous agriculture was amazing. So it goes thousands of years back. Um, and it's a huge human feat in history to be able to create this corn culture that, you know, spreads from the South of Mexico all the way up into parts of Canada and, uh, you know, all the way throughout my region of Minnesota, Dakotas and, and these areas too, and realizing like how much diversity in these crops were being um, cultivated back then. Um, and it's just exciting to think about um, understanding, you know, the landscape um, and just getting people to kind of break free of this, you know, colonized thought process that, um, you know, just because you look different than the indigenous people that you're superior to them. And that's not necessarily the case because there's a lot of knowledge out there. I mean, it's definitely not the case, but, um, you know, there's just so much that so much understanding that we can pull through. And, um, you know, food is something that we can all understand because it's the one thing that we all share. Um, and it was the one thing that was most important for indigenous peoples around the world, you know, because a lot of the colonization that was happening, they were pulling resources that, you know, were not on the top of the priority list for indigenous people. Like, you know, so what if you're sitting on a diamond mine? What's more important is family, food, the landscape and staying in that balance of keeping all those things healthy. Um, so it's just looking at like uh, what we can do for some of these tribes, especially in the U.S. and Canada that suffer from so much food access problems um, with health and, you know, showcasing a better path by utilizing a lot of indigenous knowledge from the past and applying it today by growing out community gardens with uh, heirloom seeds, um, by, you know, redesigning permaculture landscape and just, you know, landscaping with purpose and putting food everywhere. Um, and then having a place to process that and then having more and more education uh, involved around it. You know, so it's unfortunate that a lot of our kids, you know, can name more Star Wars movies than they can uh, trees, you know. So we just need to continue to uh, teach what's important to our next generation and try to set the path for them. Mm. And it's not just historical work that you do. You're also under the sous chef um, in Premature. You've got an indigenous food lab, foods lab going, experimenting with new combinations and techniques. Uh, what sort of work does that involve and what's the best results you've had from it? Well, um, we're just getting all set up. So we created a nonprofit called Natives, N-E-T-I-F-S, and uh, it stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. So natives.org is really the vehicle that we're utilizing to do the work that we're doing. So um, we're using this brand, the Indigenous Food Lab, which is not only a research and development facility for us, um, but will also be a place that we can um, have uh, class structures to teach people about indigenous foodways um, and all the research and curriculum that we've been breaking out through, you know, Native American agriculture and seed saving and farming technique, um, food preservation, um, ethnobotany and wild food gathering and identification, um, you know, cooking techniques, um, and it kind of goes on and on. And then uh, we're also, as part of the Indigenous Food Lab, creating a, a restaurant. Um, so we're, we're starting this right now in Minneapolis. We're actually trying to secure a building to get this first Indigenous Food Lab open. Um, and it'll be this restaurant that we'll be able to utilize to help um, train job skills, too, surrounding uh, food businesses with Indigenous foods. Um, and then our next plan is to really reach out to the tribes around us to help them to develop their own food businesses using us as training and education, um, and then slowly open up more indigenous food labs around the country to help impact their particular regions and their tribal areas by creating more and more smaller independent restaurants um, for those communities. Um, so we see the indigenous food lab is just this great vehicle 
um, for education where we can not only continue to learn and develop for our own sake, but also to become a resource for, um, you know, just indigenous education in general. So That's fantastic. That, that's come a long way from the Tatanka food truck, hasn't it? Yeah, it sure has. <laughs> we always wanted to be impactful on a large scale, so it just was taking some time. So I'd been working on this nonprofit vision for a couple of years now, but we just are officially um, labeled as a 501c3 in the U.S. and are now able to do the work that we're trying to do. So we've been just getting ready to jump right into it and secure this first building and then start to you know create this replicable model that we can stamp out more and more and you know, hopefully just driving the path for other areas not only north, not only just north america but anywhere around the world that wants to revitalize um, or reclaim indigenous food knowledge um, and how that can impact a lot of those communities that you know suffer with issues surrounding food and you know in, uh, the results of colonialism Mm-hmm. And you've been working with Kickstarter and things like this to get this project going. Uh, so. Yep. Originally, we had done a Kickstarter to raise money for the restaurant, um, and we still uh, will have some for-profit restaurants. But um, you know, Kickstarter was very successful. We tried to raise a hundred thousand dollars to get us off the ground, and we um, ended up raising one hundred fifty thousand and broke a record for um, having the most people chip in. You know, for restaurants, we had a, a couple, a few, almost three thousand people chip in for our project. Um, which was, you know, a pretty a pretty fun project to go through. So it was only a thirty day thing, and we raised a lot of money in a very short time. Oh, that's fabulous! Congratulations. Well, as I say, it's it's a wonderful book, and um, it's a very inspiring story. Um, would would you be willing just to finish off, just to give readers a, as listeners a bit of an idea of the um, uh, book itself? Would you be willing to take us through one of the feasts of the moon and finish off the? the... Yeah, I can do that. Um, let's talk about. Let me pull one up here. Um, let's do, let's do this first one. Um, so, uh, the very first pop-up dinner we did, um, when we first started the sous chef, we just really wanted to celebrate, you know, this, not this uh, vision of, um, bringing, uh, indigenous foods into the forefront of culinary and exploring, you know, creativity, utilizing only indigenous ingredients and technique, um, so we started doing these pop-up dinners, um, which were very successful. And the first one we did was called Owamini and the Buffalo Sky. And Owamini is the name of, we, we did this dinner right on the Mississippi River, downtown Minneapolis, in front of this a- area that um, w- was called Owamini Yamini, which meant basically place of the water of the whirlpool, because this there used to be these beautiful falls um, downtown Minneapolis area before it was a downtown Minneapolis. And uh, it, this, these falls created this huge whirlpool in the center of this, in this kind of horseshoe shaped waterfall. So Awamni was the name of that. And Buffalo Sky refers to a legend about, uh, you know, these, uh, bu- these, these uh, um, warriors trying to fi- figure out what happened to the buffalo and where did they go and tracing them way up north and finding that they all, you know, had uh, fled to the next level of a plane. So they moved uh, into the sky and basically became the Northern Lights is that kind of the legend. But, you know, this one we did, we had dried rabbit with hominy cakes, um, walnuts. We had raspberry rosehip sauce, fresh dandelions. Um, we did a dish of cedar braised beans with smoked whitefish. Um, we had um, bison with puffed wild rice and mashed sweet potatoes and watercress. We did smoked duck with dried blueberries, amaranth crackers, and pepitas. And we did um, a maple squash sorbet with a caramelized seed mix. And again, you know, using no um, European ingredients, so no dairy, no wheat flour, no processed 
sugar, excuse me. Um, and just, you know, having fun with it. And we, you know, these, um, just exploring the plating and having a, a really fun time and also inviting, um, musicians that we had a storyteller at this one. Um, we had a poet, um, and we just kind of, we shared this experience to create something unique, um, that was really focused on, you know, trying to find the source of the, you know, the true part of the culture and utilizing food, food as a vehicle to kind of get there. Oh, that sounds amazing. I'm also now extremely hungry. Um, so um, to, to finish off my last question, um, if anyone listening to this is inspired to start working with their own local indigenous food traditions, uh, especially within America, what advice would you give to them? Well, um, you know, I think our book is a great uh, kind of 101 for people to kind of just see how we did it here um, and the work that we've been doing for the past couple of years and hopefully to inspire them to think about, you know, where, you know, because especially in North America, wherever you're standing, you're standing on indigenous land. And uh, there's a lot of history that we could learn from. And there's a lot of uh, voices from the past and a lot of techniques from the past that we can utilize today you know, to be a, a stronger world, especially surrounding our community and our food systems. Um, so, you know, I hope people would like to pick up our book or visit us online at our website at sioux-chef.com or siouxchef.com, or even check out our nonprofit at natives.org. That's n-a-t-i-f-s.org. That's excellent. Thank you very much. And I'll link to all of those on the description in the podcast. Um, I've been talking to Sean Sherman, the sous chef, and Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. 